Hello and welcome to the new series of American Academy of Orofacial Pain podcast. I am your new host, Dr. Pratishta Mishra, diplomat of the American Board of Orofacial Pain and assistant professor at the University of Kentucky. I have the pleasure of having Dr. Naujan with us today to discuss how to build a successful orofacial pain practice. Dr. Naujan graduated from NYU Dental School in 2011, followed by a one-year GPR at Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center in Brooklyn. He then continued to attend a two-year CODA-accredited orofacial pain residency program at NYU Brooklyn. He started private practice part-time while teaching three days a week at Yale New Haven's Oral Surgery Department. Later on, he held the OFP didactic and clinical curriculum at the University of Connecticut. Currently, he has an academic appointment at Columbia University, but spends the majority of his time in his own private practice. His practice is one of the few that from its inception was limited to evidence-based care of TMD, which is temporomandibular disorders, orofacial pain, and associated headaches. He serves on the board of directors at the NYU Dentistry Alumni Association and the Executive Council of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. So Dr. Naujan, thank you again for being here with us today. Let's dive straight into it. Originally, what stemmed your interest in orofacial pain? Um, Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Mishra. Um, I was lucky enough to have orofacial pain lectures at uh, NYU when I was a dental student in my third year, and it piqued my interest and I started reaching out to the orofacial pain faculty. At that time, um, I wasn't sure if I was going to apply and go straight from dental school into orofacial pain, and I kept my options open by doing GPR residency first. Um, but I, I, I owe it to my dental school education and, and the presence of orofacial pain in our curriculum. Excellent. Please tell us a little bit about your transition from academia to private practice. And what did you gain from being into academia first? Early on, I realized that there was this, that there was a great need for oral facial pain in a private practice setting. Um, while I was in academia, I realized a lot of the patients that we um, take care of in academia um, have a chronicity to their pain um, due to access of care, access to care issues, um, scheduling, um, etc. So one of the things that's a little bit different about private practice is that I, generally speaking, uh, I see more people with acute issues than I would have in um, academia. Um, But what academia helped me initially was to balance the risk of opening a private practice, because at first you're usually not busy when you do these things. Um, And I was able to um, teach, learn, learn about systems, operations, et cetera, and then apply that and try to implement it wherever it fit in private practice. Thank you for sharing that. So while we are on that topic, what unique challenges does specialized private practice in orofacial pain face compared to other specialties in dentistry like endodontics, periodontics, orthodontics, and, and others that you may know of? Excellent question. I think the single biggest uh, challenge we face is that both the, the dental profession and the, and the com- dental community and also the patients don't really know who we are, what we are, and uh, what we treat. So uh, let's say, and I think, I think endodontics, for example, is a household name. 
Um, and on the medical side, if you have a skin lesion that your primary care physician cannot quite identify or, or treat adequately, you kn- most people will know that uh, they need to see a dermatologist. So I think one of the challenges we face is to bring orofacial pain into um, prominence and, and so that both the general population and our dental and medical colleagues know that we are uh, well-equipped to take care of these patients and help them feel better. Great. So can you elaborate a little bit more on what are the common myths about orofacial pain that you encounter in your practice and how do you work to dispel them? I think the single biggest one is that orofacial pain is untreatable and hopeless. Um, I think, I'm not sure where that really stems from, um, but both patients and referring doctors sometimes are not sure that these patients um, can get, gain back their quality of life and uh, and live a relatively or fully symptom-free life uh, from these conditions. So I think the biggest myth is, one, um, that these conditions are not manageable. And then the the second biggest myth is that patients will will bring this up that that they're not sure where to go or they weren't sure where to go in the first place and that orofacial pain is driven by opinions rather than by research and evidence-based care. So I think the second biggest myth is this unfortunate notion that um, treatment is rendered based on clinician preferences rather than on the research, the clinical research that's out there. You mentioned about patient referrals, and we all know that patient referrals and collaborative care play a significant role in the success of an orofacial pain practice. How do you establish and maintain strong relationships with the referring medical and dental healthcare professionals? The best way to maintain these strong relationships by is to keep the lines of communication open and honest. Um, so I'm lucky that I have a network of other professionals around me that, that help decipher some of these uh, more challenging conditions that, that may present to my practice. Um, we maintain relationships by going to different academic meetings. We maintain relationships by trying to be as communicative as possible and accessible as possible to our referring doctors. Um, we have whatever means necessary. So Sometimes that means I'll have to, at the end of the evening, spend a significant amount of time reviewing patient care with the referring doctors. Sometimes I incorporate that into the middle of the day and sometimes during my commute to work. So um, it's this constant need to refine, communicate, and, and keep the lines of communication open with referring doctors. And the other thing I do that has been immensely helpful is listening to the patient's experiences in what other professionals they deemed very helpful. And um, sometimes we just don't have the time to uh, find specialists in each and every field that I might be in. In a university center, it's a little different. You tend to know the people at your own university. In private practice, I also learn a lot from my patients. They'll tell me so-and-so is really good at uh, the management of cervical uh, neck pain, or so-and-so is really good at the management of um, or diagnosis of difficult ear pain. So I always listen to the patients and we always refine our relationships. We grow them as much as as, is feasible and uh, we're always available to them. That's interesting. Thank you, Dr. Nerjan. You you brought a very interesting point, which was about uh, cervical pain and 
referring them to the right providers. Can you talk a little bit more about the comorbidities associated with orofacial pain? Absolutely. In private practice, we see patients with a whole host of different comorbidities. Um, if there's a TMD and orofacial pain component to the pain, then we take care of that and make sure that the patient is directed um, to other specialists and healthcare providers that can help with the other conditions. So comorbidities that, CV, that we see very frequently in private practice are, are neck pain, cervical neck issues, um, systemic arthritis, undiagnosed rheumatological and autoimmune conditions, um, but also migraines, tension type headaches, et cetera, which may not have a TMD component or an orofacial pain component per se, but they manifest in the facial region. So the patient first comes to us. So we make sure that we uh, educate the patient uh, appropriately and guide them to the right provider. It seems like there's a very diverse crowd that would need orofacial pain expertise. So how do you connect with a population that needs your service and expertise? We try to, um, one, we are providers that may refer the patient to us, but we also do a lot of direct-to-consumer, um, direct-to-patient um, awareness and, and outreach. So uh, we run an active social media um, page. We um, make sure that our website is very informative and up-to-date and accurate. Um, and then we connect also, uh, sometimes occasionally I'll speak in different patient forums on um, conditions that, that we treat and that we can help. Building a network within the orofacial pain community can be very beneficial. So how do you stay connected with your fellow pain specialists, researchers, and organizations to stay informed and updated on the latest developments in the field? The single best way is through the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. Without a doubt, that's a collection of some of the best researchers, academics, private practice clinicians coming together. Um, so I stay very active in the AOP. Uh, early on as a resident, I had the honor and then privilege to go to the AOP meetings while I was still a resident. Um, and I immediately got a sense that this is the group that is really um, advancing the field. Later on, I became involved with different committees. And over time, I started chairing committees. At this point in my career, I'm on the executive council as, as a parliamentarian, where I get to um, learn from my colleagues and contribute to the field of orofacial pain. So I think anyone who's interested in orofacial pain should certainly consider coming to our meetings um, and becoming a member of the academy. Can you discuss a little bit the role of technology in your practice and what tools and equipments do you think are essential and how to enhance patient care and outcomes? So one of the things that I early on incorporated in my practice was a Combeam CT machine. I felt that I wanted to have access to imaging when needed, but I also use I also have a good relationship with surrounding imaging centers if I need soft tissue imaging, MRIs, et cetera, and they uh, understand exactly what it is that we're looking for to help our patient population. Um, other than that, I would say in terms of technology in the office, the two next big things are intraoral cameras um, and digital scanners are just a convenience factor. I don't think they necessarily improve patient outcomes, but I think it's really nice for some of the patients that don't feel comfortable with traditional impression taking when impression taking 
is needed in their care. Um, and the other one is we utilize uh, EHR um, software that's very, um, very easy to scale up, but also very easy accessible on 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 all sorts of devices. So I never have I never I wanted to make sure that I was I was able to access my patient charts um, remotely on the weekends if I needed to speak to a referring doctor or or anywhere else. So. We use a software that's uh, very user-friendly, both on, on a browser setting, but also on an iPad, but also on a cell phone. So I think those are the probably the biggest technology items. I know there are some um, people uh, within the field of orofacial pain that use some other, other uh, technological means, but I usually have found some of those to not be very evidence-based. So I, I really only incorporate things that have, have proven uh, to be effective and reliable. Handling the business side of a medical or dental practice is often challenging. Did you receive any training during your residency to manage the administrative duties uh, required in a private practice? I wish. That would have been great. No, unfortunately, we did not. Um, I, th I, I think that's uh, a thing that hopefully will change for uh, the current residents and students um, more and more as we go along. I know, the again, going back to the American Academy of Orofacial Pain, it's very interested in this particular topic. That's why I was invited to come speak today. But also at the 2024 uh, meeting, we will be offering a full-day pre-conference course on private practice. Um, and I'm hearing that some of residency programs are starting to invite uh, clinicians to speak at their programs about the business side of, and side of things and also about practice management. So I think that's exciting. Um, unfortunately, when I was a resident, it didn't exist, but I have to say, or facial pain, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed how quickly it's changing and how, how quickly we're growing. Indeed. I'll make sure to attend that course as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about the business aspect. So what financial and administrative considerations should be kept in mind when building and managing a pain practice like yours? One needs to have a the, the 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 beauty of having your own um, practice is you can really create your own vision and and structure a business plan around that vision. Obviously, it needs to be sustainable and and realistic. Um, it can't. There are no grants or safety nets in private practice that you may have in other settings. So, a solid business plan and a strategy, a good financial team around you. Um, accountants, attorneys, etc. Um, surrounding yourself with experts in, uh, in those fields that can guide you on anything from business loans to practice build-outs to uh, if you choose to do a startup, what that entails versus, let's say, um, a practice transition where you might take over someone else's practice. So each model will have its own business strategy and, and business plan um, behind it. So it's really important that just as you guys are all experts in the field, that you listen to experts in their um, fields and let them help you and guide you through it. Staffing and team dynamics are crucial to the success of any healthcare practice. So how do you build and maintain a dedicated and skilled team to support your practice's growth and success? I'm blessed with the best team I could ever imagine at this moment in time. I I think uh, building a team uh, requires one 
to always evolve, adapt, but also empower individuals to grow beyond their comfort zones. So some of the employees and team members that I've had over the years may have started in one role, but only within a short time I saw that there's um, that one, they show a lot of interest, and two, they have a lot of growth potential that may have they may have not realized. So creating an environment where people can grow um, into new roles and into leadership positions. Um, I think some of that I, I, I was lucky enough to learn in academia and, and, and see that in academia and then apply it to private practice. So again, I think I was lucky that I started off part-time in private practice and part-time in academia. Um, it just gives me a unique perspective on, on those opportunities. Excellent. So Dr. Nojan, what are the top three things that you enjoy about private practice? I love my team. I really do. Um, getting to spend time with my team and brainstorm and come up with new ideas and the fact that we get to implement new ideas very quickly. There is no red tape in private practice. So um, if you have an idea, we test it. Sometimes it fails, uh, but a lot of times it doesn't. And that's one of the idea, one of the things I enjoy the most. The second big thing I enjoy the most is my office space. I, I it's a startup practice that started up initially by renting a chair in another office. But over time, I became busy enough where I built my own um, practice in Manhattan. And I got to, I had the chance to design it and decorate it the way I enjoy it. And I think um, I really enjoy being in a space, maybe a little too much sometimes, uh, so far that I don't go home. But those are the two biggest ones. Um, and then obviously the patient population and and the camaraderie with other healthcare colleagues. Um, the, I, I'm blessed that I have a really nice patient population. Um, some reoccurring, some some not. Um, luckily, as I said, some of these conditions that I treat in private practice tend to be more acute in nature. So some of the patients I won't see regularly, um, but then some of them will end up referring a family friend or um, a colleague or whatnot. So it's really nice that it's that I've built a little bit of a community around my practice um, as well. Very well. Balancing the clinical and the business aspects of a practice can be a juggling act. What keeps you motivated, inspired, and helps maintain the work-life balance? That's a great question. I think we all, whether we're in academia, private practice, or elsewhere, um, need to find a nice work-life balance for ourselves. And for everyone, that's different. In my private practice, as, as a practice owner, I probably sacrifice a little bit more of my personal life for the sake of my practice and business at this stage that I'm in. Um, but what ultimately keeps me motivated and inspired is looking outside the field, looking at other industries where people have um, made great strides improving society and community at large. Um, as I said, I think it would be phenomenal if oral facial pain become, can, could become a household name in the next decade or two so that patients don't take so long to feel like they're understood um, in their conditions and uh, they don't spend time undergoing treatments that are not necessary. So I think what inspires me is this future goal of really changing what oral facial pain is nationally um, but hopefully also internationally, as everyone um, around the world chips away at, uh, at this particular issue. 
which as you all listeners know, it's a very prevalent issue, um, but one that unfortunately is only now starting to be taken more seriously um, across academia um, and, and, and healthcare as a whole. Finally, this is somewhat of a broad question, but how do you define a successful practice and can you share some key lessons or insights you've gained from your experience in building and running a successful or efficient pain practice that could be valuable to our listeners looking to do the same? I think a successful practice is one that's rooted in um, honesty and um, effective patient outcomes. I think we all practice in different settings, seeing different patient populations. So that's also really important. I, I practice in New York City where um, there are a few academic centers that will see some of the same patients as, as I do. So my patient population might be different than, let's say, someone who practices in Vermont or Ohio or some of the more remote areas where there's not as many universities or um, hospital centers around. So my, for me, the successful practice is defined as one where, I, where patients get better, where um, I enjoy the work that I do, my team enjoys the work that they do, um, and, and also having a certain level of accessibility that otherwise might not exist for certain patients. So um, I make it, I structure my practice in a way and we refine it and then find different strategies to make sure that patients who have very acute problems don't have to wait three to six months to be seen. So I, I define success in multiple ways, in multiple parameters, both individually as a team, but also what it really means to the patients. Well, Dr. Nojan, thank you so much for talking to us today. This was very valuable information. I would like to encourage all of our listeners over here who are interested in learning more about building or growing an orofacial pain practice to attend the pre-conference course hosted by the AAOP in Scottsdale, Arizona in 2024. I hope I get to see you there as well. And finally, this is me, Dr. Pratishta Mishra, signing off. Until I see you guys or hear you guys next time at the next AAOP podcast series, have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you.